Amen. <clears throat> Is he risen? <clears throat> and we're used to uh, the pastor standing up here on Easter and emphatically declaring that he is risen, to which most of us have been conditioned, as you just proved, to enthusiastically reply, he is risen indeed. But the question I think this morning bears repeating, is he? Really? I mean, is he? Perhaps some of you this morning are a bit skeptical, if you're honest, and rightfully so. When was the last time you saw somebody Walk out of a grave after three days. Well, skeptic or not, I want to invite you here to West Hills this morning. We're really glad you're here. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor. And on behalf of all of us at West Hills, I do wish you a very happy Easter. And we're so glad to see you. So wonderful to see so many uh, returning faces this morning for the first time. It's good to see you all back our uh, familiar, uh, once upon a time, regular attenders who are now rejoining us after uh, over, over a year, and you picked a great Sunday to do it. It's wonderful to see so many of you back. It's a blessing to see so many brand new faces this morning as well, folks I don't recognize at all, and got to meet some of you in the foyer beforehand. If I didn't, I hope you'll give me a chance after the service today to, to meet you. Would love to do that, and we'd love... To, to, to bless you for blessing us with, with you being here to worship with us. We'd love to bless you with um, just a small gift. we got a coffee mug and a, a book you can pick up at the info bar on your way out today. And while you're there, you can hear more about all the different events we've got coming up here at West Hills. You see them in your bulletin there. But we've got a new Sunday school class we're starting next week, a new sermon series that we start next week. We've got an all-church picnic next Sunday that you can hang out for, and we want to get to know each other. We're a, a family, tight-knit community here, so we want to allow some of those new, new ones of y'all to meet some of the old ones who are coming back. And then we've got an entry point class, New to West Hills class, two weeks from now, so all sorts of fun stuff we invite you back for. But for now, I want to return to our question at hand for this morning, is he risen? Really, is he? And perhaps just as importantly... Does it matter? It's, it feels almost blasphemous as a pastor to stand up on Easter of all Sundays and even ask that question. But this is a church where it's safe to bring your honest questions and doubts. And I have to believe that in a room with this many people in it, getting close to breaking the, the COVID limits here, I have to believe that it, at least some of you are wondering that. I mean, what, what, what difference does it make really, practically, in my life today if some guy 2,000 years ago raised from the dead or not? Let's just assume for the sake of argument that Jesus did come back from the dead. So what? Well, if that's you this morning, you've come to the right place, we're going to be in the right text you're in good company. That is the exact question that the Apostle Paul, the most famous Christian of all time, who authored half of the New Testament, the exact question he's trying to answer in the 15th chapter of his first letter to the church in Corinth. That's where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one of those as well at the info bar after the service. But apparently some of these first century 
first-generation Christians in the church in Corinth were also struggling with this idea of resurrection. Paul admonishes them in verse 12. He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, my study Bible answers Paul's question, and it gives us some historical context here. It says their confusion was a result of their experiences with pagan philosophies and religion. A basic tenet of much of ancient Greek philosophy was dualism. It's this idea that taught that everything physical was intrinsically evil, and so the idea of a resurrected body was repulsive. In addition, perhaps some of the Jews in the church in Corinth formerly may have been influenced by the Sadducees, a sect of first century Judaism who did not believe in the resurrection. And so they're beginning to ask this question, is Jesus even risen? And why does it matter? And in verses 1 through 20, chapter 15 this morning, Paul's going to offer them and he's going to offer us five reasons why Christ's resurrection is not just important, friends, but it is absolutely central. It is the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. It's the most important reality in all of human existence. Five reasons. Number one, because Jesus' resurrection is the gospel that saves us. Paul opens chapter 15 in verses 1 through 4 with these words, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel, the euangelion in Greek, it literally means good news. It is an announcement. It's a declaration Paul claims here that it is the gospel by which you are saved. He reiterates this in his letter to the Romans, chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Believes what? Saved how? Saved by whom? Saved from what? Paul answers all those questions implicitly here in verses 3 and 4. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, this is perhaps the clearest, most concise articulation of the gospel good news, the centerpiece of the Christian faith found anywhere in Scripture. He writes, I deliver to you as of first importance. He says, if it's really the power of God for salvation, then this is the most important news you're ever going to hear in your entire life. Listen up that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the good news of the gospel. There is a God. You're not him. But you and I live most of our lives like we are. Our lives center on us, not on God. And the Bible calls this sin. But the good news is that God so loved the world, so loved you, that he gave his only son, Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall have everlasting life. On the cross, Jesus Christ took all of your sin, everything that once separated you from a holy, pure, perfect, 
otherwise unapproachable God, Jesus traded his righteousness for your unrighteousness, and he paid the penalty for your sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What you and I rightfully deserve by virtue of our sin against a holy God, remember, a punishment, a just punishment is determined not just by the type of crime, but by its target. If you slap me in the face, I will do my best to turn the other cheek like Jesus told me to. If you slap Officer Mullins, who's on duty for us out here in the foyer in the face, you are going to get tased and thrown in jail. If you try and slap President Biden, you will not make it out alive if the Secret Service has anything to say about it. So the justice of a punishment is determined not just by the type of punishment, but by its target. And every time you and I sin, we essentially slap the almighty sovereign Lord of the universe in the face. And the just penalty for our perpetual rebellion against him is eternal spiritual death. But the good news is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And he has now made a way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to a pure, holy God, if we simply believe, simply trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you can be saved this morning. But how do we know? How do we know that Jesus really accomplished all of that? Verse 4, Paul says, because he was buried and he was raised on the third day. Christ's resurrection is the validation of the salvation that he purchased for you on the cross. Jesus' final words on the cross, it is finished. He said, I have completed the job that God the Father sent me to do, paying the penalty for all your sin, past, present, and future, and saving all who would simply trust in me by faith. His resurrection, three days later, it was like the receipt proving that the check that Jesus wrote for your sin had cleared, forgiveness purchased, our debt paid in full. So what difference does the resurrection make? No resurrection, no gospel. No gospel, no salvation from sin, and no salvation, no forgiveness from sin, no eternal life. In short, the resurrection makes all the difference eternal difference this morning now we could just end right there we could i could declare he is risen happy easter we all get to brunch early but paul's not done he's got four more reasons for us why christ's resurrection is absolutely imperative number two jesus's resurrection is the best explanation for historical fact in contrast to the Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, the foundational basis for the Christian faith does not lie in spiritual experience. Unlike atheism and agnosticism, the most important truth claims of Christianity are not rooted in the shifting sands of scientific speculation. Unlike the prophets, Muhammad and Joseph Smith, who conspicuously received their revelations from God privately, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, no one else around. Unlike all of them, Jesus of Nazareth did something really interesting when he founded the Christian faith. Not mystical experience, 
not ever-changing spiritual uh, experiences or, or scientific theories, not private revelation. The basis for Christianity is historical fact. And Jesus' resurrection simply makes the best sense of all the available evidence we have from history. Now, I understand that is quite a claim. Because as I have already acknowledged, of the estimated 101 billion people who have ever been born, lived, and died on this planet, approximately 100 billion, 999 million, 999,999 of them have stayed dead. We do know of eight others in the Bible who died and were raised from the dead once, only to eventually die a second time and stay dead that time. So I'm not counting them. But how can I stand up here this morning as an otherwise, I think, pretty intelligent, mentally stable, enlightened 21st century person and claim that Jesus' resurrection is historical fact? Well, if you are a skeptic, as I once was, I would simply encourage you to do the research for yourself. We don't have time to examine all of the evidence together this morning, of course, been many volumes written on it. I'm happy to give you book recommendations. We actually send you home with one of them. We've got a short little book, The Case for Easter, at the info bar, if you want to pick one of those up on the way out, written by Lee Strobel. Strobel was an investigative journalist and an atheist whose wife came to faith in Christ, and she challenged him to put his skills, his detective skills, to work scrutinizing the evidence for the resurrection. And after months and months of interviewing medical and biblical historical experts and primary source documents himself, Strobel concluded it had to be true. He was converted. You can pick up a copy on your way out. But here in verses 5 through 8, I'll give you one reason. Paul highlights just one of the questions that every skeptic must answer. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then how do you explain the dozens of eye, the hundreds of eyewitness testimonies of followers who claim to have seen him in his resurrected body before he ascended to the right hand of God the Father? Paul writes... Verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul says, listen, if you don't believe me, go ask any one of the 500 plus followers who, who saw him. How could Paul get away with writing something like this if, if he knew it was just a bold-faced lie? How could the other four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how could Cephas and the 12, verse 5, how could James and all the apostles, verse 7, how else, how else do you explain Paul himself, in verse 8, who willingly laid, up, laid down, gave up his, his cushy life as a Pharisee atop the socio-religious hierarchy, social ladder of his day to endure shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments and ultimately beheading all for the sake of the gospel. Paul says elsewhere, for the sake of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've lost everything. I count it as rubbish, garbage, in order that I might gain Christ. There are really only three possible explanations for something like that. Number one, they were all liars, all 500 plus of them. They simply fabricated the whole story about Jesus being raised from the dead. What's their motive? Maybe power. Maybe they're... Mostly poor, disadvantaged fishermen, carpenters, and the like. 
starting a new religion, gave him a power trip, it's a means to influence. That doesn't explain the conversions of those who were already influential, those like Paul, Luke, Barnabas, Philemon, Lydia, Cornelius, dozens more who gave up power to follow Christ. And it surely doesn't explain why any of them were willing to go to their deaths, as the vast majority of Jesus' earliest followers did, rather than renounce the faith. Listen, sane people don't die needlessly for a known lie. Sane people don't die needlessly for a known lie. It's all fun and games convincing people to come listen to you preach until the Romans start rounding you up and feeding you to the lions. And then the, the joke's over. Like when your neck is on the line, a sane person will not die needlessly for a known lie. They might die needfully for a lie, a prisoner of war might lie to protect his country, but if the resurrection wasn't true, then Jesus' followers died needlessly. People die for lies that they don't know are lies. Islamic terrorists strap bombs to their chest because they think it buys them a one-way ticket to paradise and 72 virgins. It's a lie. They just don't realize it's a lie. But Jesus' followers claim to personally see him, to touch the nail holes in his hands. If it was a lie, they knew so full well. And a martyr might die for the truth, but sane people don't die needlessly for known lies. So that brings us to a second possibility. Maybe they weren't sane. Maybe they were all, you know what, crazy. Lunatics, certifiable, all 500 plus of them, convinced of the same deranged fantasy, the so-called hallucination theory. They all started seeing things, the same things, at the same time. This is where... This theory starts to fall apart. Michael Lycona explains hallucinations are like dreams. They are private occurrences. You can't share a hallucination with someone any more than you can wake up your spouse in the middle of the night and ask him or her to share a dream that you were having. The stolen body theory, the mass conspiracy theory, one by one they all fall apart until you're left with only one alternative. Maybe, just maybe, the resurrection actually happened. And it did. It did. Don't take my word for it. Research for yourself. Number three, Jesus' resurrection is the power to change us. Paul says in verses 9 through 11, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God. I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. <clears throat> See, before he was Paul, he was Saul. And Saul got famous for being really good at killing Christians. But the book of Acts, chapter 9, recalls Paul's own death to life, eyewitness account of the resurrected Jesus and his subsequent 180 degree supernatural conversion from persecutor of the church to persecuted for the sake of the church, from rebelling against Christ to reveling in the love of Christ. Paul says, it wasn't I who did it, 
Like, I, I don't have the power to pull off that kind of radical self-transformation. We're not just talking about some minor personal makeover here. And y'all remember that show, Extreme Makeover? I think the spinoff, Extreme Home Makeover, might still be running on TV, but the original got canceled after two or three seasons. It turns out it's okay to admit that your house needs some work, but you know this idea that personally, extreme personal makeover, that goes too much against the grade of the prevailing idea in our society, that no matter who you are, no matter what you're like, you are perfect just the way you are. You don't need to change a thing about you. And to be fair, if all you're changing is what's on the outside, like they did on the show, lose some weight, get a haircut. And that's true. I mean, you can slap some lipstick on a pig. It's still a pig. But Jesus is offensive. Here comes Jesus, who has the audacity and his downright rudeness to look at every single one of us, not just what we look like on the outside and point out our receding hairlines, not just ditch the jorts and get a nose job, he looks at who we are, our innermost being, and says, in love, there is something wrong with you. You need help. The Bible says, none is righteous, no, not one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were created by God for his glory, but we've fallen short. We live for our own glory Instead, and worse yet, we are utterly powerless to do a thing about it on our own. On our own, we're powerless. Let me just ask you this morning, because I am convinced that deep down, we all know that it's true. We all know that there's something wrong with us. Be honest. What do you want to change about you this morning? I hope it's not as superficial as my thighs my receding hairline. Listen, I, I know that I've got far bigger problems than being follically challenged. That is not the biggest problem in Will Duvall's life. You know, maybe it is your weight. Seems superficial. But dig a little deeper this morning. Is your overeating just a coping strategy to avoid dealing with some bigger emotional issues in your life? It's usually the case. Maybe you're just addicted to food. Let's talk about addiction. You addicted to alcohol? I won't make you raise your hands. Anyone here this morning addicted to alcohol? Addicted to sex? Addicted to pornography? Addicted to dopamine? Streaming and scrolling? That little hit that you get every time Facebook lets you know you got a new notification? Maybe you're addicted to others' approval? You need to be accepted by people? Or you need to control others? Maybe you've got an anger problem that you just can't seem to get under control, an anxiety problem that you can no longer manage, depression, greed. How much is enough for you? Just a little more? Or success, maybe that's your idol. You call yourself driven, but really you just get your identity from your work, and so you hide behind your performance so you don't have to deal with your inner person. Friend, I don't know what it is for you, but I know you've got a problem. What do you want to change about yourself this morning? The first step, as they say, 
is what? Admitting you have a problem. But do you know what the second is? Admitting that you can't do a thing about it on your own. So I ask you this morning, do you know the one who can? Do you know the one who can change you from the inside out? Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The world says leopards don't change their spots. Jesus says, come watch me change a leper's spots and melt a heart of stone. He healed diseases and forgave sins while he was here on earth. And his resurrection means that he is still alive and he is still working today, but now he lives inside you. That song we just sang, his final breath on the cross now lives in you. It can live in you. Romans 6, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is now alive in you. If, if you have surrendered your life to him by faith, You can't change you, but praise God, he can. And he proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. Number four, Jesus' resurrection is the reason to believe in him. Paul says in verses 12 through 14, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Let me just be blunt. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, most of us here have wasted a whole lot of time in church, in Bible studies, in prayer for nothing. My preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. All of this is absolutely pointless. You take away Christ's resurrection, and what are you left with of the Christian faith? A good moral teacher? What, who who called people dogs and vipers and said we're all going to burn in hell? Thanks, but no thanks. I'll go be a Buddhist. I can find morality elsewhere. Well, we still got this nice Christian community thing going. Listen, if this is just a social club, I'll be honest. I'll go pay for, for friends at the country club who are a little bit more refined than some of y'all. <laughs> I need more than morality. I need more than community. I need a savior, and so do you. And praise God we have one. The only reason to believe in Jesus is because he is risen. Jesus is who he says he is. He did what he said he did for you, and he is worth it all. Your faith, your heart, your life, have you trusted in him this morning? Lastly, number five, Jesus' resurrection is our hope for the afterlife. Is our hope for the afterlife. You know, I know a lot of folks have been coming to grips with our own mortality this past year. If you are one of those folks who have been asking, why does God allow COVID? I want to suggest that that that's reason enough for you right there to encourage you and me to get our affairs in order, your eternal affairs. COVID was a wake-up call by the grace of God for many, many people. 
And Paul admits that if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then not only is your faith futile, not only have we in the church been wasting a whole lot of time and prayers, but you are still in your sins. You're still dead in your sins, he says. Remember, no resurrection, no salvation. And Paul says, in that case, verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He's not talking about physical death when he says perished. Fallen asleep, the first half of the sentence, that's a euphemism for physical death. He's not being redundant. He's not saying if you die, then you die physically. He's talking about spiritual, eternal perishing. And then he summarizes it for us in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Listen to me. If archaeologists discover, unearth Jesus' body later today, then you and I can all go out and eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we will die too and stay dead. As Christians, we of all people are to be pitied for how much of our lives we will have wasted on a lie, on a sham, on a hoax. Because that's what it is. Let's just call it what it is. If the resurrection didn't happen, it's the greatest hoax in history. Without the resurrection, this is all for naught. And if it's about this life only, then by all means, go out and party on. Eat, drink, fornicate, accumulate, indulge yourselves. But, but, that is such a big, beautiful but in verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It is true, friends. It's true. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that means that you and I one day will be raised from the dead as well, either to eternal joy in paradise with Jesus or to eternal agony and suffering apart from him. And so I ask you again this morning in closing, do you have hope for this life only? Or do you have a hope that transcends the grave? Do you have your eternal affairs in order? If you don't, I plead with you this morning, do not wait a moment longer. You are not guaranteed your next breath around this place. I had one of you just this past week ask me to pray with you for your cousin whose husband dropped dead, age 30, out of nowhere, thought he was in perfect health. They still don't know what happened. You're not promised your next breath around here. None of us is safe. Death is a disease 100% fatal coming for 100% of us. You don't know when your name is going to be called, but you do know it's going to be called. And my question to you is, will you be ready when it is? Christ has been raised from the dead. Trust in him. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray.